0: Thank you, Christy. Well, as you are all probably aware, I am not Steve. Uh, He is enjoying, I hope, some downtime with his family on their uh, vacation, and we'll be back next week, so continue to lift that family up in prayers as well. Um, Just to start off by way of introduction, I realize that we're in a season of celebration because of the Christ child as we've focused on. However, this morning we're not going to have a traditional sermon focusing on Advent. We will be in the book of 1 John. And even though we won't be looking specifically at the Advent of the Savior, in a way, we're still going to be looking at the Advent of the Savior. Now that may sound confusing, but I hope is as we progress, it will become more clear. And generally, when I when I get the opportunity to preach, I do like to give a small introduction and Usually that can be an illustration to kind of set the mental uh, mood, it could could pose a specific question or it could be a bit of historical information that's incredibly helpful in understanding why a particular book was written. And in the case of 1 John, it's important for us as his extended audience to know what things were taking place and what struggles he was facing around the time he wrote that letter. First, because it helps us have a heightened appreciation for the truths found in God's holy word, and second, it helps us have a better uh, or better interpret the meaning of what the author wrote. And if you have not done so already, please turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1, and we'll be reading the first four verses. And if you're able, please stand as we honor the reading of God's word. First John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, John the Apostle writes to us, he says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write, so that our joy may be made complete. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to expound your word. Thank you, Lord, that you were willing to not only send your Son, but to give us your Holy Scripture so that we would have truth. Absolute outside of us truth that we can rely upon, Lord, and that that truth points us to the glorious truth that is the gospel. Father, I pray today that you would magnify your gloriness or your glory, and Father, that you would magnify your Son, and that everything I say, Lord, would just be mere feeble words that your Spirit would take and just implant in our hearts and our souls. Father, that you would get glory and honor, and that you would hide me behind the cross, and that you would use this mere stammering tongue, Father, to just Highlight the truths that are found in scripture, Lord, for your people. Thank you again for the grace and the mercy you've given each and every one of us, each and every day of our lives. We ask this now in the most precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So John was writing to the churches in the region of Ephesus near the end of the first century. It's about 70 to 90 AD, or excuse me, yeah, AD. The churches in these areas were being threatened by many false teachers. There were three main false teachings, or what we call heresy, which is the opposite of orthodox, that were, they were facing. One was called Gnosticism, Docetism, and Sorinthianism. And if you ever get the opportunity to look at church history, I highly recommend it. It's fascinating to see where we've come from as Christians It's equally fascinating to read about other Christians throughout history that were willing to fight against heresy and the integrity of the scriptures, sometimes at the cost of their own life. And so what I want to do is just briefly summarize these three heresies or false teachings, talk about uh, how they still kind of exist today, and what we, like John, can do about them. And the first one is Gnosticism. Gnosticism was an obvious heresy because it pointed to knowledge instead of the grace of God in order to get you back to God. These Gnostics, the people that taught this, they taught that there was a group of eight divine beings that broke into different subgroups of one, two, three, sometimes four beings, and that they taught that some were light, some were dark, some were powerful, more powerful than others. Some were more knowledgeable than others. And they taught that the way to them was through knowledge. Through back to these divine beings, as they called them, you had to have a special or heightened knowledge. And through this obtainment of knowledge, you could actually be perfected to a sinless state. And once you got there, they would put you through a sort of baptism. And here's what they would say, the Gnostics. They said they baptize you In the name of the unknowable father of all things, in truth, the mother of all, in him who came down upon Jesus, into union and redemption and the fellowship of the powers. It's pretty wacky stuff. And then naturally, this this obtainment of this special knowledge led many people to arrogance and a lack of love for people in the churches. After all, this knowledge was special, and if you were lucky enough to obtain it, then everyone else was quite literally below you, and subsequently not worth your time or humble affections. It would be like nowadays snubbing your nose at a poor person or somebody with dirty clothes, or somebody struggling with a sin that's just a little different than yours, because you believe they were beneath you. That's what these people were doing. And because of the way back to God, they thought, was special knowledge there was a total disregard or lack of regard for the human body. Knowledge, as they taught, was the telos, or the end goal in life. And this made the body something, in a sense, to be destroyed because it was preventing you from obtaining that spiritual knowledge. And so consequently, this led some people to treat their bodies harshly, which is known as asceticism. Essentially, it was the practice of punishing oneself for your sinful behavior, which really in reality amounted to nothing more than self-abuse. The other extreme was, without reservation, given into bodily desires. That's licentiousness familiar with Paul's admonitions to deacons and their wives that in order to be qualified for that office, one cannot give into or be prone to licentiousness. Now, God, or what they call these divine beings, is obtained through a higher special knowledge. And through this obtaining of knowledge, um, they taught that it would be um, no need for divine grace from God. Yet Paul reminded us of something in second or excuse me in Ephesians chapter two. He said, By grace you have been saved. Unmerited favor that you and I don't deserve God has given us by his divine supernatural ability to be saved, not a special knowledge. And then he responded to Timothy in like manner he said, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments which are falsely called knowledge. And the second heresy that was taught was docetism. Docetism is derived from a Greek word, dacheo, meaning to seem or appear. This heresy taught that Jesus, who we would call Christ, did not actually live in a physical body. It just seemed that way. Jesus appeared to have taken on a human body during his earthly life. And these docetists believed that spiritual matter was far superior to the physical matter. And for this reason, they emphasize greatly the divinity of Jesus, but they forego the necessary importance of his bodily presence on earth. And consequently, Jesus, as a result, could not have experienced the full breadth of human experience, including pain, eating, drinking, or hunger. And if Jesus did actually experience any of that stuff, it just appeared that way or seemed that way. That's what they taught. Imagine with me if docetism was true. Knowing that Jesus, the Son of God, did not really suffer, experience hunger, thirst, or feel the pain of stingful death when near and dear loved ones were lost to eternity would essentially render our faith hopeless. From the docetist view, you and I do not really have a high priest that's able to empathize with us. We don't have a high priest that was tempted like us in every way, yet without sin. And the last heresy that John was combating was by a man named Sorinthus, Sorinthianism, who in his own right was a Gnostic teacher, and he taught many heretical things. Here's a few of them that he taught. He taught a rejection of the virgin birth of Jesus. He taught that Jesus was the genetic offspring of Mary and Joseph, not the supernatural act of God. And he taught that Jesus was simply special because he exceeded all other men in wisdom and righteousness. And the last thing that he taught was that the Christ Spirit actually came down on Jesus in the form of a dove at his baptism, but left him before his crucifixion, because this Christ spirit, as he taught, was incapable of experiencing suffering or pain. And I say all that to say that this was the context that John wrote. These teachers, these false teachers, these heresies, that's what John was writing this letter for to the churches in the region of Ephesus. Many who were subscribing to these false teachings, they were pulling away from fellowship. After all, they didn't need it. They were claiming to have received a perfect, sinless state, and because of that, they treated others with contempt, and they were loveless in the true sense of the biblical Christian definition. Can you imagine if Steve or I came in one Sunday morning and just started preaching all kinds of strange doctrine? All of us would probably be like, Pastor, I don't know what Bible you're reading, but that's not correct. At least I hope we would, right? But that's not what these false teachers do. That's not what any false teacher does. What they do is they chip away piece by piece a little at a time in order to introduce heresies and draw away the congregation. And they even do it using scripture. This is why it's so important to be in your Bible. Today, much of the heresy we face in the modern church doesn't really look like sinless perfection. New age spiritualness might be. It doesn't look like the Christ Spirit coming down upon Jesus as baptism. It doesn't look like a special knowledge that only certain people can obtain. It looks a bit differently, doesn't it? It looks a lot like God just wants you to have a healthy life. You try to tell that to one of your atheist friends who has a family member suffering from cancer and see how far you get. It looks like God just wants you to be wealthy. But what about the poor people and the destitute? Does he not want them to be wealthy? He just wants you to have blessings and happiness and better behavior and self-indulgence and self-reliance. He just wants you to do self-help. God just wants you to follow your heart. God just wants you to be happy. That's what false teaching looks like today. This is why John was writing this letter. Heretics have chipped away a little at a time, and many in the Ephesus churches were being led astray. Some intentionally, because then they could do whatever they wanted, claiming to receive sinless perfection, and some were just confused and struggling and wanting somebody to help them out. Look back with me at verse 1 and 2. John says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life and the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the father and was manifested to us the first thing i want us to see john pointing to here is the undeniable unequivocal eternal life of jesus who is called christ let me draw this out a bit more years ago My wife and I watched this movie, I don't really recall much about it aside from the premise and the plot, but the setting was 1928 Los Angeles, and a mother returned home to discover her nine-year-old boy Walter had gone missing. Now the police department in the movie is chastised for its apparent incompetence, corruption and other things, but several months pass by and the police tell the mother that the boy has been found. We're going to do a public reunion. We're going to have the media is going to be there. We're going to get ready for all the publicity shots. And the train pulls up. The boy gets off. The chief presents him to his mother. But unfortunately, to his dismay, the mother denies that this is her boy, even though the nine-year-old Walter claims to be. The mother confronts the chief with multiple physical discrepancies between this boy and the real Walter to prove that this boy's not her son. But he has a medical doctor visit her, only to tell her that the trauma of his disappearance has caused him to shrink three inches and various other things. And eventually, the newspaper prints a hit piece on the mother. She's committed to a psychiatric hospital and fed mood-stabilizing medication. But they tell her, listen, if you just admit this boy is your son, if you'll just confess this one, this one, this one that we're putting before you, we say he's your son, just confess that, life as you know it will go back to normal. But she refuses to acknowledge this boy as her son because for nine years this mother has has heard her son with her own ears. She has seen him with her own eyes and touched him with her own hands. She's beheld him with her motherly grasp. And she refuses to say that this boy, who is not her boy, is indeed her boy, no matter what everybody else tells her. Now consider what John is facing. Even though these false teachers would have people believe all kinds of crazy things about Jesus, John has a phenomenal way of tying together not only the gospel account that he writes and this letter, but he ties it all together with Genesis chapter 1. Jesus is the undeniable, unequivocal, eternal life. In Genesis chapter 1, it says that God created by his word. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the word, or in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then here he tells them, in one fourteen, John 1.14, Jesus was the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. We saw him in his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now in his letter to these churches, struggling with very deceptive ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing, teaching all kinds of heresies, feeding these people a Jesus that John knows is not the real Jesus, he reminds them that just as this is the same person, this is the God-man who was from the beginning. This person, this one, the word made flesh, he was from the beginning, he is the word of life. The all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, creative word of life. This man that that they claimed was just a spirit or just a man, this man, this God-man, he is the faith-giving, faith-sustaining, salvific word of life who is and was and is to come. Amen? This one, this word, we have heard, John says. You don't don't get it, people. This this is not some made-up story. This is not an external vision we had. This is really the real one, flesh in reality, and we have heard him. With our own ears, we have heard this one, and he was and is from the beginning. John says, not only did we hear him, we've seen him with our own eyes. These eyes that were created by the God of heaven the King of kings, the Lord of lords, these eyes that he fashioned with his own hands, we have seen him in the flesh and he dwelt with us for three years. He was not just some spirit. He was 1,000% God and 1,000% man. We saw him with our own eyes. We beheld him in all his glory. The text says what we've looked at But in the Greek, the word translated looked at is better rendered behold. John says, not only did we hear him and see him, but we beheld him. We we adored him in all his glory. Glory is from the Father as the only begotten. We beheld the wonder of Jesus, God made man. It's like hearing the sound of the newborn babe. We behold the wonder and the awe as we look upon this life that's created in the image of God. And we say, oh my goodness, that's amazing. It's like beholding something beautiful and glorious and thinking to ourselves, now having lived a more full life for the opportunity to beheld such a thing. This is the feeling that John says they had as they beheld, adored, and looked at the amazing wonder of God made in the flesh. He says, as if that wasn't enough to convince you, these struggling congregants, that Jesus was a real living man, fully God in the flesh. He says, look, you're not getting it. We heard him, we seen him, we gazed upon the wonders of his glory. But if that won't convince you, we actually put our hands on him and touched him. The creator of the world was in our presence and we felt his flesh with our own hands in real time, in real history. And all of this was concerning the eternal word of life, which is Jesus the Christ. We heard, we saw, we beheld and touched the word of life, which was manifested, which was revealed to us. And we have seen it. In fact, because of that, he says, we testify and proclaim to you that this is the word of life. He is the eternal life. And yes, he was with the Father in the beginning and was revealed to us. How can we believe anything else about Jesus, John wonders? You know, many will say nowadays that Jesus was simply a good man. He did great things, or they'll say that he was really not sinless, or that he wasn't the Son of God, or that he didn't die on the cross. But I'm here to tell you, if that's the truth, there's no hope for life. There's no hope for forgiveness or salvation if Jesus was just a man, even if he was just a spirit. If Jesus was just a man or just a spirit, you and I might as well become members at the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. You laugh. That's a real thing in Australia. You you know that? That's a real thing. But that's the hope you have if Jesus wasn't God and man in the flesh. We're members of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. But let me remind you of John's words. We heard him. We saw him. We touched him. And he, God, lived in the flesh with us for three years while we beheld his glory. Are you struggling this season? Silly question. We all struggle every day. But perhaps this will be the first Christmas without a loved one. Or perhaps you're stuck in the hospital fighting diseases. Maybe you're just broken and your relationships are damaged, seemingly beyond repair. Maybe you just can't get away from that one besetting sin. Maybe the hopelessness you feel is mounting and the pressure is getting worse. I don't know what your struggle is, but I know you've got it because I've got struggles and we're all humans. But I want you to know something. That hope is real and hope has a name and that name is Jesus Christ. Who was from the beginning real God, real man human flesh, perfectly able to empathize with you in your sufferings, to cry with you, to feel pain and brokenness like you, and then to go to the cross for you so that you and I would never be without hope again. That, John says, was the advent of Jesus the Christ, and do not let anyone tell you anything different about who he was and is. And the second thing John points out is, Undeniable, unequivocal fellowship found in his words to these struggling Christians. The reason John is proclaiming these things to them is because without these beliefs, without believing these things, you're unable to have true biblical Christian fellowship. Look again at verse 3. It says, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. Church Fellowship, True Biblical Christian Fellowship, Koinonia, is a meeting of two or more people who seek to engage in community, conversation, and exhortation centered around Jesus Christ. The word quite literally means to commune together or to form a partnership. True Biblical Christian Fellowship is not getting together to watch the game or to let the kids play while you grill outside. Now, those things can certainly take place during fellowship, but that's not the essence of biblical koinonia. Before we took uh, winter break, Sabrina and I were leading a family discipleship group on Sunday evenings, and yes, we had kids running around, sometimes seven or eight. <laughs> we, we had grilling, we made food, but the whole purpose for coming together with others was to break bread, to nourish ourselves physically, And then to intently focus our time on breaking open the bread of life and nourish ourselves spiritually. That was the sole purpose. And Steve, Annie, Sabrina, and myself, we do the same thing on Sunday evenings right now as we look at what church-wide discipleship might look like in 2022. But we have koinonia so that we grow together in the grace and truth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. That is the point of fellowship. That's what John is telling these churches. Listen, all those things that false teachers are telling you is wrong. We tell you these things with truth, because our very real experience with the person of Jesus, he invaded all five of our senses for three years, and we proclaim these truths to you so that you may have fellowship with us. That is, other Christians who hold to biblical Christology. If you don't hold to this teaching about Jesus Christ, You are not in fellowship of Christ, and therefore not in fellowship with other believers. That's not me saying that. That's the Bible. But it is even more than that, because John says the only reason we can have fellowship is because it's with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. Church, don't miss how important this is. You cannot have fellowship together with other Christians if you don't 1,000% agree to and hold these teachings about Jesus. That's what unites us as a body in a congregation, is this about Jesus. And furthermore, you cannot have fellowship with other believers if that fellowship is not grounded in the Father and Son, right? Vertical makes horizontal okay, but this has to be correct before this can even get right. Claiming to have fellowship with others or to be a Christian without holding to these biblical doctrines of Christ is like claiming to be a professional mathematician And then saying 2 plus 2 is 5. It's not possible. It's not. To illustrate this point, I'm just going to jump down to chapter 2 real quick and see what John says about it. In chapter 2, verse 22, he says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, that's us, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. John tells us plain as day, if you deny Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, dwelt in the flesh with human people, then you are potentially and subsequently Antichrist and you deny the Father. Because you cannot deny one and affirm the other, because they're one and the same. You deny the Son, you do not have the Father. But if you confess the Son, John says, you have the Father also. These false teachers that John was combating are essentially, in a biblical sense, antichrist, because they're denying Jesus the Son. If you believe anything about Jesus contrary to what Scripture teaches, you deny him. This is why Jesus said, the only unforgivable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If you deny Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, how can you be saved? That's the unforgivable sin straight out of the Christ's mouth. And John's saying the same thing. If you believe anything about Jesus, contrary to what Scripture teaches, you're denying him. Scripture, my friends, is not a buffet like our favorite restaurant. I don't go to buffets for obvious reasons, but when I do, I used to go take all I want and leave what I don't want. Like, why do they even put salad on a buffet line? I mean, I'm not going to eat it. It's good for me, but I'm not going to eat it. Scripture's not a buffet. We can't just take the things we like that make us feel good and leave everything else because, well, that one gives me a bitter taste. That one doesn't make me feel good. John says you can't do that. You cannot do that. He goes back to the beginning, what you have heard from the beginning, that God the Father sent his son, the God-man Jesus, to dwell in the flesh and to die for the forgiveness of sins. Let that consume your heart and your mind. And if you do that, you will abide. You will dwell in the son and the father and your fellowship will be with the father and the son Jesus. Your intimate gathering, communal partnership will be with God the father and his son Jesus. And for that, you can have fellowship with other believers. This is why John's so adamant about this. The purpose of koinonia, Christian fellowship, is to encourage, equip, exhort, and build up other believers. The reason we come to church and are not to forsake the assembling together of ourselves, as is the custom of some, the reason we disciple and are discipled is to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. It is to help one another, to serve alongside one another, to lift out a helping hand to teach Sunday school class to to humbly admonish each other when we see a brother or sister in sin. All of that is to help us center everything around Jesus Christ. Not you, not me, not even this building. But you cannot do those things if you deny Jesus. And you may be thinking, "Pastor, I don't deny Jesus." But Jesus said, if you love me keep my commandments. It was if Jesus was preaching and teaching every sabbath in their synagogues before they kicked him out, why do we think it okay to skip church for lesser things with no eternal value? Why do we come to church only to be entertained or perform or to see who is here? If if Jesus said to love your neighbor, Why do we only give generously and sacrificially during Christmas? If Jesus said to go and sin no more, why do we live one way Monday through Saturday and a different way on Sunday? If Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one will come to the Father but through me, why don't we live our lives that way and tell everyone we know? Without... Adhering to God's clear revelation of the person and deity of Jesus and his commandments, that's the important part, how can you have fellowship with God the Father and the Son? You cannot cannot, and I cannot. If your fellowship is not grounded in the Father and the Son, how then can you have true God-exalting, God-glorifying, Spirit-edifying fellowship with other believers? You can't. If you don't affirm these things, and live your life in such a way. I firmly believe the more we're in our Bibles daily, the more our heart deepens its love for God and its relationship with the Son, which then strengthens our fellowship with the Father and the Son, and consequently our horizontal relationships improve. But we can't fix this without this being right. The last thing John points us to is the undeniable, unequivocal Christian joy that comes from these truths and fellowship. Look again at verse 4. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. John is speaking on behalf of what he himself and the other apostles have written and taught. He wants those in the churches across the land that love Jesus Hold these truths of Scripture close to their hearts and have fellowship with the Father and Son to know that there is no greater joy than to see another come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's right. Amen. In fact, that's why he's writing these things. I have a regular conversation with my youngest. He's not here, so I'm going to tell you about it. But he'll say this thing I see, you're not happy. See, you're not happy. And uh, we have this conversation constantly about chasing happiness. It's like, it's the wrong, son. It's wrong. But um, I don't know if you've noticed, but in America, I mean, perhaps other parts of the world, I'm more familiar with America than I am other parts of the world. But if you ask most people, they'll tell you, what do you wish for your kids or what do you want most in life? They'll tell you. What they want most for their kids and themselves is happiness. And... and you know, you can look at church history and the history of America to see where that kind of came into our, our being as a country and as a people. But, but happiness, as my 14-year-old put it, is cookie happiness. New car happiness, new job happiness. Dare I say, for a lot, it's Christmas morning happiness. It's a warm, fuzzy feeling for a short amount of time, and then it goes away. That's happiness. It's like, oh, cookie, that tastes great, it's gone, I want more sugar. And that's what we do as a people. We seek happiness. We we don't want to be down. We don't want to feel pain or unhappiness. So we do all kinds of things to get that shot of happiness to carry us until the next time we can get another shot of happiness. And we're chasing this thing that's not obtainable. But John's not aiming for that. And consequently, as his extended audience, neither should we. John's aiming for joy. And that joy is made complete, he said, when those to whom he is writing subscribe to these truths and thereby commit their lives to Jesus Christ. That's the joy he's seeking. That's the joy we should all be seeking from each other, that we commit our lives to Jesus Christ. We're all familiar with the Washington Monument, I trust. The Washington Monument is 554 plus feet tall, and it sits as the beacon in Washington, D.C., started in 1848 and finished in 1884. It was open to the public in October of 1885. In the year of 1998, a $500,000 renovation project took place on the lobby, and the construction workers found some graffiti on the wall from the 1800s. You believe that? I know we're all thinking graffiti. That must have been terrible, but it was quite a bit different than the modern-day graffiti. Much different tone as well, but it had been covered up for 100 years when they revealed it, and here's what it said, quote, Whoever is the human instrument under God in the conversion of one soul, in Acts, a monument to his own memory more lofty and enduring than this. The loftiest thing we can do in life is see another converted to Jesus. The one thing that is able to and should bring us joy, that should make our joy complete is to see another pulled out of the depths of sin and hell and into the kingdom of God by the blood of the Son. This, John says, is the reason he writes these things to the churches in the region of Ephesus and subsequently to us, that their joy may be made complete, that we may have joy in knowing that Jesus Christ, real God, real man in the flesh, Died so that you and I could be forgiven of our sin when we put our faith and trust in Him and live our lives in obedience to His Word. John said, That's the joy. That's it. That's what He's aiming for. Brothers and sisters, know during this and every season, either difficult or good, dangerous or safe, restful or tiresome, that the undeniable, unequivocal eternal life is Jesus, who is and was from the beginning. The manifested Son of God dwelt in the flesh. If you believe and hold those truths dearly, abide in them, you will have undeniable, unequivocal fellowship, not only with God the Father and his Son, but also with other believers. And because of that, you will share the beautiful truth of Scripture with others, only to see them give their lives to Jesus, and as a result, experience undeniable, unequivocal Christian joy Nothing that this world could ever give you, nothing, is only found in Jesus Christ. I don't Like I said, I don't know what you're struggling with today. I know I'm struggling with a lot, and I could pretend like I'm not, but that would just be foolish. But if you're struggling today, maybe you, you, you don't know who Jesus is, or maybe you do know who Jesus is, but you don't quite understand what that means to your life come today, talk to me, talk to Pastor Tom. Steve's, like I said, not here. Maybe you're struggling with fellowship with other believers. Maybe you don't quite know how to build relationships that are God-honoring, God-glorifying, and seek to engage in communities centered around Jesus. Come, talk to us. We'll help you. If you're not experiencing, or or maybe you're chasing happiness, and and you know that it's never going to fulfill you, but you chase it anyway. Come talk to us about Christian joy and what that truly means. John said the only thing that will bring you joy, complete joy, is knowing Jesus in truth as the scripture teaches, obeying him and seeing others pulled from the pit of hell and cast into the kingdom. So if you're struggling today with any of that, you come up here, you talk to us. You could talk to the Lord right now in your pew. It don't matter. You can come to the altar if you want. But as I pray for you, I want you to know something. Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man. He dwelt among us. He died for your sin. He died for my sin. He raised to life because sin is what keeps you in the grave. And he ascended to the Father, sent his Holy Spirit, so that one day all of us will live in eternal glory with him forever. That is the most beautiful, wonderful, joyous thing. I don't know about you, but for me, it gets me from one day to the next. Sometimes life is hard, amen? You take that joy today and you bury it deep in your soul and you ask God by his spirit to bear fruit. To If your soil, the, the soil of your heart is hard, ask him to cultivate it and crack it apart and fertilize it with his spirit and fill you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your grace and your mercy. God, we glorify you. We love you. We thank you that you're faithful. And I'm thankful that you sent Jesus and that he was not just some spirit or some man that did good things. Lord, he's all of that and more. He is the perfect God-man, dwelt in flesh, living among his people so that he could save us. Emmanuel, God with us. You shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. God, I'm thankful today that you're a God of, of grace and that you're a God of forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, for your word and the truth that your apostles and prophets were re- willing to uh, write down and, 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 and tell us about so that we could know the truth. And the truth, Lord, will set us free from the bondage of sin and slavery, from the bondage of chasing happiness, from the bondage of serving ourselves or serving false gods. It will set us free, Lord, and into your kingdom. And the truth manifested is Jesus Christ. God, I pray today that you will continue to get glory over your people. And those that don't know you, Lord, or they're far from you, or they're struggling, knowing the true Jesus, the one the Bible talks about, the one that John said was from the beginning, God, I pray that you would send your spirit to touch those people's hearts and their minds and that you would draw them to yourself. God, I pray if we're struggling with fellowship with one another, Lord, that we would be manifest, you would manifest your glory in our lives and that we would center our relationships around Jesus Christ. And Father, please let us have the joy of our salvation return to us. Let not the enemy take it. Let not the world cloud it out or drown it out. And let not us, Lord, be caught up in chasing happiness. I know we celebrate gift-giving and sacrificial times, all that, because of the Christ child and what you did for us. But Lord, let that not be the end goal. Let the end goal be to do those things so that people would see our works and glorify our Father in heaven. Him alone is worthy. Worthy are you, O God, our rock, our Father, our creator. For you created all things, Lord. You're worthy of glory, power, and honor. By your word, they were created and existed. There is no life apart from you, Lord. Thank you for all that you do for us. We ask today that those that are under the sound of my voice, Lord, will go through the doors, exiting the building today, with your spirit in them, through them, around them, before them, and behind them. Thank you, Father, for all that you do for us. We ask this in the most precious and holy name.